Pinocchio, a conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. That's actually pretty good. There's a lot of wisdom in that. That still small voice that people won't listen to. That which we often ignore, right? That which we often suppress. What is lacking is this. When we think biblically, the conscience is that still small voice informed by God's word. So it is really the word of God resonating, ringing in our minds, evaluating us, judging us as to whether or not our words, our thoughts, our actions, our deeds conform to or depart from the word of God. And so we want to be clear on that Uh, to help us really understand it. The faculties of the soul. I don't know. Is that an expression familiar to you? I wasn't sure if I was going to use this, but we are going to use it. Faculties of the soul. No. How does the soul function? Has faculties. Uh, you're using one right now. Most of you. Your mind. Right? Or we might call it the understanding is a faculty of your soul. Right? Some of you are so tired. You're just dreaming of a nap. <laughs> desiring a nap. Longing for a nap. Basically in love with the idea right now of falling asleep. What do we call those things? The affections. That is a faculty of the soul. Your affections. What you love, what you hate, what you desire, what you delight in. What grieves you, what worries you, what frightens you. And then the will. You make decisions and choices, don't you? Those are faculties. When we speak of the conscience, it resides here. In the realm of the mind, the conscience. And so it is part of that faculty of understanding. The understanding seems really to consist of two main parts or what we might call the components. The first, William Perkins calls theoretical. So what we're doing right now, we're acquiring knowledge with our minds, the theoretical. And we're learning and we're absorbing and we're memorizing And we're storing, right, all of this information. And as we do that, this information, we are learning as we go along the difference between true and false, right and wrong, good and bad, acceptable, unacceptable, beautiful, dare I say ugly, not so beautiful, and it goes on and on and on and on. We are learning these things as we acquire knowledge that is the theoretical part of the understanding and then there is the practical part which is what we call the conscience it compares our words thoughts feelings actions against what the theoretical part of the mind knows the understanding we have especially our understanding of right wrong good bad truth error And then it does this, and this is where it hurts us sometimes. It passes sentence. Either for us, or maybe it's never happened to you, it happens to me every so often, against us. That your words, your conduct, your actions, what you did yesterday, that thing from three weeks ago is actually contrary to what you know. True, false, good, bad, so forth and so on. Okay, have I lost anybody? 
That makes pretty good sense. The nature of the conscience. Number two then, we're moving on. The function. I've already alluded to it a little bit, that the conscience passes judgment. We can be even more specific. I think best you to use biblical language. You've got a great statement in Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So this would be natural law which God writes upon every single human being who's ever lived or will live, natural law, common law, while their conscience also what? Bears witness. So the conscience witnesses and their conflicting thoughts. So the conscience comparing behavior with what they know to be true, right or wrong, according to the work of the law which God has implanted inside every single human being, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Another great text, 2 Corinthians 1. For our boast is this, the testimony, so it testifies, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. So it witnesses, it testifies. Another way of explaining that right there in the notes, it functions as an arbitrator. It gives testimony by determining what we have done or not done. And it gives judgment by determining what was well done or ill done. And the conscience makes this judgment, gives this testimony, gives this judgment, ought to, on the basis of what? An objective standard. See, this is where the problem is going to come in when we get to the condition of the conscience. Right here is where the dilemma arises. Because you see, the conscience needs to be informed through the theoretical part of the mind. The theoretical part of mind needs to learn the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, from what? an objective reality, objective truth, God's word. And so as God's law, that becomes the objective standard by which the conscience witnesses and testifies. All right, how are you then on number two? Good? We will get there. Yeah, we will get there. Good question. Is it guided by the Holy Spirit was the question. Very good. We will get there. Can I hit the button? Number three. The condition of the conscience. It's condition. Uh, broadly speaking, the conscience is in one of two states, conditions. Uh, two kinds, if you like, of conscience. There is a good conscience. What is that? Well, it's a conscience that functions according to God's word, like it's supposed to. There is an objective standard of truth. It has learned this objective standard of truth. It is there theoretically in the mind, and therefore the conscience, the arbitrator of the soul, has a record, a dependable, reliable, objective standard at its disposal, and it compares our behavior then with that objective standard. That is a good conscience, a bad conscience. Oh, did I skip one? Or an evil conscience functions contrary to God's word. Suppresses it, ignores it. It might be ill-informed. 
it might be well informed but willfully ignores, suppresses what it knows to be true. But either way, whichever option, whatever is going on, the conscience therefore is classified as evil, functioning a contrary to God's word. So you think big picture, big tent, these two categories. The first then is what? Whoops. That is the position of the believer. A good conscience. There is the reality of the unbeliever. An evil conscience. An evil conscience is restored. How and when? When the evil conscience is renewed and purged by faith in the blood of Christ. So you know what happened at the fall. Yes, Adam and Eve's fall. The mind was, Scripture tells us, darkened. Right? The affections were disordered or hardened. And the will was enslaved to darkened thoughts, a darkened mind, ignorance, enslaved to disordered, hardened affections. This was the state, our state, by virtue of the fall before God saved us. And because the mind was darkened, the conscience is then what? Bad, evil. And that will arise either from misinformation, poorly informed, or misapplication. Did I spell that right? I don't know. Creative spelling, however you like. Misinterpretation. Too many S's in there for sure. Or misapplication. All right? Mississippi. I think that's what was on my mind or something like that. Does that make sense? Right? So this is the condition then um, that every unbeliever finds himself, finds herself in. But a good conscience is restored, renewed, and purged by faith in the blood of Christ. So at the moment of the new birth, what happens? This darkened mind is suddenly illumined or enlightened, if you like to use that word, illumined. And the disordered affections are now what? Ordered. And love for God is now implanted again as a principle within the soul. And therefore the will that was enslaved is now what? Loosed. Set free. And we now engage on this great struggle between the flesh and the spirit, right? Because the mind is only illumined in part. The affections are only ordered in part. The will is only released and liberated in part. And we now have these two principles of love for God, love for self, which are two semi-intact motivational systems in our life, and that is the tension and the struggle that we encounter our entire journey until we arrive at our heavenly home. But the fact is, when the, when the mind is illumined, the conscience then is also what? Illumined. It goes from a bad state to a good state. I've explained that for you in the notes. I think we can go quickly through it in the context of Hebrews 9. Beautiful text. For if the blood of goats and bulls, oh, here we go. Back in Leviticus in the Old Testament and all that stuff that makes the mind, boggles the mind. Stay with me. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Break it down into its parts. The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. Those who had been defiled, that is legally defiled, excluded from the worship of God. So that's what's going on there. That's the Old Testament context. That's fine. The contrast that is being made now, this antithesis that is being formed on the part of the authors between that and Christ's sacrifice, which has accomplished so much more. Why? Because he offered himself to God, firstly, an atoning sacrifice. As John Owen writes, this is all in your notes, so you can sit back and relax. God is considered the author of the law against which sin is committed as the supreme ruler and governor of all unto whom it belongs to inflict the punishment which is due unto sin. So Christ, this offering to God, offered himself to make atonement for sin, to suffer in his body the due penalty for us having broken the law. Notice, secondly, he offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. It is his deity. So the sacrifice is made in his humanity. But it is his deity, Christ, one person, fully God, fully man. His deity that gave dignity and efficacy to his sacrifice. He offered himself without blemish. This refers to the purity of his nature and the holiness of his life. And he offered himself, why? We don't usually frame the gospel in these terms. When we talk about why did the Lord Jesus come, we usually think in terms of to rescue us. Yes, pay the penalty for our sins. Yes, destroy the works of the devil. We don't often frame it through this lens here, do we? He offered himself to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? It's everything we did in this condition here by the fall. Absolutely everything dead in that our works, our actions proceed from a principle of spiritual death. Dead in that they're useless and fruitless. Dead in that they deserve death as a punishment. But through his atoning sacrifice, Christ has cleansed our conscience from all of these things, these dead works. And so now what is the relationship between these dead works and the conscience? A guilty sinner whose conscience is pricked, whose conscience is still weighed down by those dead works will never approach God. I certainly can. One more. Is that not in the notes? Oh, there's those blanks. Yes. Blanks. There they are right in front of me. Sorry about that. They're dead in that they proceed from a principle of spiritual death. That's right here. This is spiritual death. They're dead in that they're useless and fruitless. And they are dead in that they deserve death as a punishment any questions so far we're getting there cleanse then the conscience cleansed from these dead works how by christ's atonement the guilt of sin is removed right that's justification typified by the blood of goats and bulls and by christ's atonement the defilement of sin is removed that is sanctification typified by the ashes of the heifer Beautiful. 
that this is what Christ has done for us. He has cleansed our conscience from dead works. All that we have done in the flesh, all that belongs to the old Adam, all of that disordered fruit, so to speak, that was the result of our position dead in our trespasses and sins. The conscience is now cleared, firstly, positionally, That's the doctrine of justification. The guilt of sin has been removed because Christ has borne that guilt, condemnation in his body upon the cross. And secondly, progressively, practically, the defilement of sin is removed. Sanctification, whereby he is now daily cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Any questions on that? Make sense? The condition of the conscience. We're getting there. We arrive at number four and then finally try to extract something from uh, this paradigm that might serve us well in a counseling context. The sanctification of the conscience. And so if all of this is true, granted, if we understand what the conscience is, good conscience, bad conscience, what it means as a believer now to have our conscience cleansed, what are the implications? Firstly, We must be certain to obtain a good conscience. It is done by three steps. I'm not going to say a lot about these. You can just fill in those blanks. Preparation, application, reformation. Preparation. This is page four. The top under the heading, the sanctification of the conscience. Preparation whereby we discover what the law requires determine our condition before God and sorrow as a result. Application whereby we apply the blood or the merits of Christ and then reformation whereby the conscience begins to excuse and testify unto us by the Holy Spirit that we are the children of God and have the pardon of our sins. So that's how we obtain it. It's conversion, right? Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that three steps. I'm not saying it's sequential like this. Certainly no separation between them. But it's helpful to think in terms of these categories as to exactly what is going on. There was some comprehension of our sinful condition before God as a result of our understanding His holiness, His standard, His law that made us pursue, look for a Savior. We found that Savior in the person of the Lord Jesus and His merit, His merit alone. And now having rested in Him, The bad conscience becomes a good conscience. It is cleansed by justification, cleansed by sanctification. And we are now convinced, assured that we are the children of God and have the pardon of our sins. And now, what is our responsibility as Christians? You got to keep it. We need to keep a good conscience. Preserve, guard, cultivate. Two key steps. We must avoid impediments such as ignorance, unmortified affections, and worldly lusts. Just note those three for now. And we must use preservatives. We are to cherish that saving faith whereby we are persuaded of our reconciliation with God in Christ. And we maintain the righteousness of a good conscience, which is nothing else but a constant endeavor and desire to obey the will of God in all things. So put yourself now in a counseling context. And someone has come to you because they have been wrestling 
struggling for some time with some sort of habitual sin. Whatever the said sin is, you fill in the blank. It's not really relevant for our purposes. But the individual has come struggling habitually with this sin. I find this discussion of the conscience, a believer, I find this particularly helpful in guiding me when it comes to framing how I am to understand this person and how I am to speak to him or her. Because if they are coming then wrestling with habitual sin, I immediately know what? They are struggling with a a bad conscience. A good conscience, they have forfeited it through their behavior. And now I'm looking for what, as I engage with them, manifestations of that poor conscience. Things like what? Denial. Excuses. That'll be a big one. Shifting blame will be huge. And when we hear these things, and we could add to that list, certainly, when we hear these things, we know exactly now the why. What's going on? We have an individual who has forfeited a good conscience because of their habitual practice of a sin, contrary to what they know is true, based on God's law. And now, rather than heed that conscience, rather than act according to that conscience which has condemned them at some point or is continuing to condemn them, they are going to find some way with every fiber of their being to do what with that conscience? Shut it up. Do you see what's going to be going on then? Their thought process. How do I stifle it? Quieten it? And, and you, you'll hear, you'll hear the excuses then, the shift blaming, the minimizing of the sin, the trivializing of it, the playing down of its severity, all of this rising from a compromised conscience. The impediments and I almost I guarantee it, William Perkins is really onto something here. It is because they have succumbed in this context to one of those three impediments: ignorance, unmortified affections, or worldly lusts. You can categorize it according to one of those three. And so it very I find this very helpful just in terms of shaping a paradigm and understanding things, what exactly is going on, the why, and then beginning I'm starting to appreciate a lot more then what my calling is as a pastor, uh in discipleship, in counseling, what my calling is in terms of speaking to what? The conscience. Targeting. The conscience, aiming at the conscience. And so that takes us then, on, you're on page four, and you see now the, the words biblical counseling. What are the implications for biblical counseling? And this is where I want to get a little more practical. I'm still working through some of these things, but I trust there's enough here to at least get you thinking, maybe lead some to some deeper study and consideration of this subject, and at least some initial application. All right. See where we are. One, two, three, four, gone. We can go back. Any questions? Something unclear? We're doing okay for time. We're not rushed. Yes. Fire away.
Yes. No, that is how we obtain it, is conversion, right? We now need to maintain it. So positionally, as believers, we have a good conscience. In practice, what? We might not. We have one. It's been cleansed from dead works in Christ Jesus. We may not be living in the reality of it because we have compromised it. Hence, the calling is to maintain it. Identifying impediments, identifying preservatives, etc., etc. Does that make sense, Elaine? Yeah, brother. So you had a counselee in the chair, and they have gone back to what you call the bad conscience. Is that equal evil conscience? Well, they they are now exhibiting, they are now practicing according an evil conscience. Positionally, they have a cleansed conscience, a good conscience. Yeah, but in their practice. They've compromised it, and their conscience is not now functioning as it should. So this is the context of the battle between flesh and spirit. Very much so. And so you can see immediately then, in a counseling situation, if that's the case, you need to start thinking in terms of categories. The first category is this. Okay, if they've compromised their conscience, is my greatest calling responsibility, my chief calling right now, to inform the conscience? Is that the issue? That they really have minimized something in the light of Scripture. Um, that they have trivialized something. And so I know now, moving forward, what I really need to target is, no, this is what God says about that. And get them into the Word in order to what? So that an arbitrator is again influenced by objective truth, objective reality. Because positionally their conscience is... And if they are a believer... Guess what? They will respond. At some point, maybe not immediately, but if they do have a cleansed conscience, they're not going to be able to go on indefinitely. Right? In the back. Wrapping my mind around, like, working it out in the same way, like Philippians talks about, where we work out our own salvation. It's the constant progressive sanctification. We are constantly finding the flesh, the conscience, the mind, the affections, the will. And it's just. It's a constant working out of it. Yeah. Um, we, we still sin, but we are, we are right before God. But until we are made to glorification, we are in that process. Right. Because right now, to, in you, in me, to, and this is Galatians 5, for example, Romans 7, 8, you have two semi-intact motivational systems. You're schizophrenic. Basically, <laughs> that's what we're saying. We're schizophrenic that you have the flesh, which is love of self. That's all it is. We are lovers of self. And you have the spirit, love for God. And these two semi-intact motivational systems influence how we think, what we want, and therefore what we choose. The battle between the spirit and the flesh, antithetical. And we are to what? Be filled with the fruit of the spirit. And when the fruit of the spirit are resident, what happens to the works of the flesh? They are pushed out. And so we are to cultivate what? So much of sanctification is simply what? Cultivating love for God. So that we act according to love for God and not love of self. Place the conscience in this paradigm. 
If flesh gains the upper hand, what happens to conscience? To survive, what has it got to do? It has to deny reality. It has to deny what it knows is true. And it has to suppress it. Right? In order to live with himself, live with herself, and blame someone else, shift blame, shift responsibility, minimize, trivialize, and on and on and on and on it goes. And so when you're sitting with someone and that is their pattern, that is the way they're operating and functioning, you know exactly what is going on. Right? At that moment. But when love of God reigns supreme, and the conscience is now being informed by the will of God, any uh, breach of that law, it cries out and we respond. And the response is confession, repentance, turning from sin. I mean, we could go even bigger here. Do I dare? Yeah, turn to Romans 2 for a moment. This, This might be helpful to someone, even when it comes to the unbeliever. Romans 1. Even when it comes to the unbeliever, this might be help. This this actually might be helpful for some of you, especially engaging unsafe family members, unsafe friends, and try and knowing how am I supposed to handle this? What am I supposed to do? And uh, and oh Lord, it seems so overwhelming. Verse twenty nine of Romans one: They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now here's the most startling, one of the most startling statements in scripture. Though they know. What? Though they know. It's the law written upon the hearts of every single human being who's ever walked the earth. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. An evil conscience, even in that condition, what are they doing? Paul tells us this earlier in chapter 1, they are willfully suppressing the truth. They are suppressing what they know is true. Okay, we just move from counseling to the whole question of evangelism. When you witness and engage with individuals and people, please understand that when it comes to God's laws, God's standards, you are not telling them something they do not already know. They know it inherently right and wrong they have willfully suppressed it and they are doing all that they can to quiet their conscience and it behooves us in evangelism as it does in counseling it's the same approach to go right after the conscience and it is to insist and uphold on god's law god's law and pray that by that means god's spirit brings about conviction change, alteration, and transformation. So that might be useful to one or two here. If not, forget we even went down that road. In terms of counseling them, I always, says Paul, Acts 24, take pains. You can make this your motto for biblical counseling. You can do up your little cards that you give to people with your phone number. This could be your little scripture. I always take pains to have a clear conscience. That's what we're going to do toward both God and man. That's my aim of my biblical counseling, of my preaching, of discipleship, evangelism, that we might take pains, pursue this clear conscience toward both God and man. To do so, in counseling specifically, you need to be ready to evaluate the conscience. And recognize, this is a little tricky, it is a little tricky, recognize There are other factors at play. Family, 
cultural values will influence the conscience, right? Um, how could Abraham and David and others practice polygamy? Because their conscience was what? Being influenced by cultural values. How could our forefathers not merely practice but defended slavery? Because they were being influenced by cultural values. And the conscience therefore gets skewed. Past, present experiences. And so when, you, when we engage with people... And we're going after the conscience. We need to probe and recognize there could be family, cultural factors at play here. There could be past, present experiences that loom large and have become determinative when it comes to the conscience. There are moral, philosophical issues. And so you live, we live in a natural society which has imbibed a naturalistic worldview. So when you engage with your average unbeliever, they don't even think they have a conscience. It's not, a, it's not real. And, and so understanding then that there is this denial of, of, of something that the Bible makes so clear and where they're coming from, but not, not for one moment mitigating the fact that their conscience is active, even if they deny it, it's, it acknowledge its existence. They cannot run from it. Uh, I, I don't want to open up a can of worms, but again, it might be helpful for just one or two. I find it helpful any, anyway for engaging with the LGBTQT+. Because sadly, and we should feel sadness and compassion, what you find at the root of so many engaged in that movement and identifying themselves according to fallen sexuality what you find, I think, so impulsive and at the root of so much of it and why there is this insistence on their part, not merely of acceptance but of affirmation is what? They cannot quiet the conscience. Cannot do it. You can't do it, folks. If we have a biblical worldview, you cannot live contrary to a God-given conscience and just think all will be well, all will be normal, no accountability, no responsibility, no ramifications, no consequences at all. And that comes into play in so many ways. Habitual sins. Uh, as we engage with people, the sin has been going on for some time then yes, they might have become completely cauterized as to its seriousness. So in counseling, we need to weigh these things. And make some determinations if there are other factors at play and these things might need to be spoken to. We need to make a call here in the language of Titus 1.15. Am I dealing with someone who has a defiled conscience? It refers to someone whose conscience is tarnished on account of willful sin. It refers primarily to the unbelieving. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. Am I dealing with someone who has a seared Conscience. First Timothy 4.2, it refers to someone whose conscience has become insensitive due to habitual sin. It's that idea of the calluses, right? You prick it with a pin, you don't feel a thing. Take out a razor and remove it, you don't wince. Absolutely nothing, because you become dead, cauterized, insensitive. 
And we might very well be engaging with people who fall into that category. And then our calling then to bring the word of God to bear and trust that the spirit of God would work through the law of God, pricking the conscience. There might, they might be struggling with a weak conscience. This refers to someone who thinks they're sinning even when the Bible is silent on the subject. Ever met anybody like that? We might call it a tender conscience. No, it's actually a weak conscience. There's a biblical expression term for it. So be aware of these categories as we evaluate the conscience, all that might be at play, contributing factors, these three biblical categories that help define it for us and therefore require a specific response. And then giddy up, we need to get after it. We need to target the conscience, target it. And I think through four chief means, and this is what I'm still developing in my thinking, is what does this look like in different situations, different circumstances? Let me give you the four headings that I'm working with currently of what it means to target the conscience. Number one, it, we need to, it means I need to inform it. Um, in counseling, in preaching, and so much of what constitutes ministry, I need to make sure I am intentionally uh, ensuring that I, people, have a well-informed, a biblically informed conscience, God's standard, God's law, that it needs to be front and center. Secondly, I'm doing a lot of thinking along these lines. What does it mean to disturb the conscience? Stir it up. Agitate it. By means of examination. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So I want to inform it by means of the law. Disturb it by means of examination. Ease it by means of the gospel. Bunyan has a, a great, uh, paints a beautiful picture by way of analogy for us in the Pilgrim's Progress when a Christian wanders into the house of interpreter and finds himself in this parlor. And in the parlor, in the room, there's the, like three inches, four inches of dust, dirt on the floor. And then this man comes in, this tough guy with a broom, and he starts sweeping frantically. Well, if you've ever tried to sweep out the garage where there's a bunch of dust and dirt in there, what happens? All you do is create what? A cloud. And you start to choke on it. That's exactly what happens. And uh, interpreter says to Bunyan, see, that's the law. It's fundamentally important because it's designed by God to make people choke on it, choke on their sin, be aware of their state, their condition before him. But that's all the law can do. All it can do is show us our sin. Then a damsel, John Bunyan describes it as a damsel, a young woman, a young girl comes in who has a basin of water and she sprinkles it on the dust. And what does that do to the cloud? Settles it down. And then what does she do with that wet on the ground, she sweeps it all out of the heart. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so, yes, we want the conscience to be informed by God's law. We want the conscience to be piqued. We want the conscience to be stirred. 
We want the conscience to do exactly what it is designed by God to do, function as the arbitrator and testify and witness and either excuse or condemn. And when it condemns, we want that to be loud and clear. And then we want the gospel, the remedy for a troubled conscience. As we look away from self, forsake sin, and find forgiveness and cleansing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, the fourth category I'm working with is this. What will it mean to guard the conscience by means of discipline? Guard the conscience by means of discipline. And by way of example, I think Romans 12 is particularly insightful. And with this, I will conclude then. I'm sure it's a well-known text. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. Right? Do you know it? I appeal to you, brothers. I beg you. In other words, he's saying what? Sit up, pay attention. This is kind of important. It's urgent, right? And you might be dealing with people like that all the time. Sit up and listen. This is important. I urge you. I plead with you. I'm not lazy. I just really enjoy doing nothing. Oh, the importance of discipline of engaging with God's Word and applying God's Word. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. So he really hones in on God's steadfast love, the fact that the Father's giving of the Son for us is a gift because this becomes the motivation then, right? The impulse. The Son's giving of the Spirit to us is a gift. Our identity in Christ is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Adoption is a gift. Glorification is a gift. Gift upon gift upon gift. We are beggars. And all that we receive from God is by way of a gift. Therefore, I appeal you to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that the mercies of God will overwhelm you. And so this rehearsal of how God has been merciful to us in Christ Jesus, that you might do this, you might present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does that mean? It simply means to exchange our will for God's will. What does that mean? It means to offer our lives as a burnt offering not my will but yours be done which is your spiritual worship given the mercies of god it is only reasonable that we should live for him serve him worship him he is no fool love this quote from jim elliott familiar to most of us i'm sure he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose do not be conformed to this world and we're not conformed to the world we're conformed to christ to his suffering to his death to his life, to his character. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, including what? The conscience. What's the purpose clause? So that what? Oh, yes, metamorphosis, that idea of transformation, renewal. So that you may prove what the will of God is. That's a good conscience right there. That's a clear conscience. That's how to get it. Right there in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I think Paul just unpacks in a very succinct way, delineates some very key steps in the pursuit of a clear conscience. So all of that in a biblical counseling context, I think could prove exceedingly profitable. And I trust there is something in there helpful to you. Any questions as we wrap up? Any blanks you missed? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, needs uh, needs the law again as a reminder of what he already inherently knows: right, wrong, true, er, truth, error, good, bad. He already inherently knows it. Now needs that objective standard external to himself to remind it, bring it to the surface. Hence, conviction. But needs the gospel. Because that conviction alone will not be enough to bring about transformation. It's only then as he is struck by God's love for him in Christ Jesus, the mercies of God, that he or she will find the impulse, the motivation, right? It's like Saul chasing David in the wilderness. And they're in the cave, remember? David cuts off the robe, follows him out. Saul, what's his response? He's under conviction for sin. And what does he say? I have sinned. Or, no, actually in this case he says what? You are more righteous than I. Does it make any difference? No. A little while later he's chasing him again in the wilderness. Takes the jug and the spear. David confronts him. What does Saul say? I have sinned. Oh, what conviction for sin. Isn't that beautiful? No. No. Uh, Saul was still lacking something. The glory of God's goodness, the glory of God's grace, the glory of God's steadfast love. That is ultimately, yes, the conviction must be there, but it is the other that will ultimately draw the heart to God away from sin. Because individuals like Saul will come to that point where they experience conviction, but they will not act in a manner then that glorifies God or reflects the truth of God. They will act in a manner contrary to it. Again, denying it, suppressing it, in Judas's case, can't live with myself. Conviction, terrible conviction. Went out and hung himself. What was the missing element? He knew nothing of God's glory, the glory of God's grace and goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom he'd spent three years with. That helpful? Yeah. Anything else? Yes. Excellent wife. He was talking about the protections of the wife. And I think there's a section there where she, she's talking about it is helpful yeah yeah very much so to know that it is there and we can make a direct appeal to it and it is god's appointed arbitrator and it is there A well-informed conscience. 